Guess who's back? High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Unexpected musical masterpieces. Doomception. And who deserves to preserve? All this and more coming up on This Week in Retro. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello, Dave. And hello, an unexpected surprise for everyone. It's John. Welcome back, John. Hi, everybody. The Godfather, the grandfather. Do we call you Daddy? The, 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 <laughs> Please don't the call man, me Daddy. <laughs> the man who conceived this week in retro 85 shows ago. It's great to have you back on the show, John. Well, I'm so um, glad to be back. I'm so glad to see you guys. And you've been really busy lately. Tell us what you've been up to, John. Well, it's been a busy summer. Uh, we uh, hosted, I don't know, I didn't really talk about this much on the first 50 episodes of This Week in Retro, but I actually <laughs> do another show uh, called uh, Amigos, Everything Amiga. And uh, as part of that, we sort of spun out into all these different retro computing uh, podcasts. I actually do six podcasts, if you can believe it. Uh, wow. And um, we, we have such a large community now that I thought it might be worth uh, casting out the net to see if we could put on our first festival. And uh, on July, uh, July 24th and 25th, uh, or I'm sorry, in June, June 24th and 25th, uh, Boat Fest 2022 was born. Uh, we rented out a conference area uh, in a local uh, hotel here in lovely Hurricane, West Virginia. And we had uh, about 30 or 40 guys. Uh, and their spouses, some willing, some un, uh, show up. Uh, and uh, we had uh, just, you know, three days of, of uh, camaraderie, a lot of gaming, uh, some, some, a lot of fun and food. Uh, it really went well. Uh, I wasn't sure what, uh, you know, planning a festival would be like and if anybody would come. But by all accounts, everybody had a good time and um, we'll be doing it again next year. Awesome. Well, knowing you, it would have been extremely well organized. So I'm guessing there would have been some, maybe some high school challenges or something like that. That's right. Um, we had a uh, we had a Coco, a Tandy Coco three, uh, a ZX Spectrum one two eight, and a, an Amiga set up, and we were playing uh, high score challenges on each one of those. The Amiga game was Dodgy Rocks, which you guys might have heard of. Um, I played that one. No, it's a, it's a. These were all new releases. Uh, the Spectrum game was a game called Trash Man Revisited. I know you guys know Trash Man. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, it's a Trash Man Crisis Time, which was the the sequel that just came out last year. And then on the Coco, it was a, a phone port of a game called Timberman. That was actually a, the most played game of the event. It has that addictive Flappy Bird type, uh, you know, quality to it. So um, we had some really exciting high score challenges. We did classic gaming Jeopardy, which Neil, you contributed to, and Dave as oh, well. Yes. <laughs> uh, both of you submitted questions to that, which were very well received. So, um, yeah, it was a, a fantastic time. And I want to give a special shout out to Frank at RetroRewind.ca for uh, sponsoring the event. He really uh, helped out financially and he was there fixing uh, machines all weekend long. It's really neat to have a repair corner uh, around because whenever you have something that doesn't work, you just sort of flip it over to him and he opens it up and fixes it for you right there. I wish I had somebody like that all the time. And I noticed that you actually recorded and broadcast shows live from Boatfest because I, I watched as much on streams as I could and you did an episode I think of all the shows you do live at Boatfest in front of a, a live studio audience. That's right. Uh, that was, was the incredible first time. You managed to pull that off. 
that was the first time we've ever performed live in front of a studio audience. And uh, I won't lie to you, it was a little bit nerve wracking because when you when you when you say something and it falls flat and it's just Aaron there to laugh at you, you know, it's no big deal. But uh, <laughs> you're, you don't want the crowd to turn on you at Boat Fest, that's for sure. Oh, so it's such a... 2023, is it coming? It's coming. It's coming soon. It's coming. We'll look out for that. Such a professional, John. You're there with your with your sponsors, mentioning your sponsors. You're promoting your event. This show has missed the <laughs> level of professionalism that you bring here. Um, just tell us, what was the reaction to the ZX Spectrum over there? Well, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, their first experience. Yeah, a lot of people had never played on a real hardware before. Thanks to the efforts of uh, you know YouTubers like you, Neil, and uh, and and Kim Justice, there's uh, there's more of an awareness of the British computer scene in America right now. But the hardware is still as rare as hen's teeth. I guarantee you that Aaron and I, between the two of us, we have the largest ZX Spectrum hardware and software collection, maybe not only in West Virginia, but in the entire sort of mid-Atlantic region <laughs> of the United States. Uh, but people people really, I mean, of course, we were at a vintage computer convention, so people were going to be excited about anything they'd never played before. Um, but uh, yeah, it went over really well. One thing that really helped was we had the, the Div MMC Future. Uh, from the future was 8-bit, uh, that that uh, SD storage device. So we weren't having to mess around with a lot of load times. And if something went wrong, if the system crashed, it was an easy reset. And I think that's really the key to uh, people enjoying retro computing is just to kind of remove those barriers of wait times and uh, sort of not knowing what to do if the system you know falls flat on you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, it's great to have you back, like I said, um, for, for this show only, but hopefully we'll have you again in future, John. And um, absent from today's show, of course, is Chris, who, well, we were very excited because Chris has come all the way over from Australia to uh, England, and he was going to come to the cave today, and we were all going to get together and film, and John was going to remote in. Um, and he got hit by the dreaded COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. He's okay. He's not, I think he had two days of um, cold-like symptoms and he's feeling a lot perkier today, but he's keeping himself isolated uh, at his parents' house where he grew up. I think it's the same house where he grew up. And um, so he has done a little segment for him, which will cut away for us, which we'll cut away to now, in which he tells us how he's surviving in isolation in his childhood bedroom. Hi guys. Yep, I am in the UK, but unfortunately, it got me, um, so um, as in the virus. Um, so here I am, stuck in my teenage bedroom, which is not a bad place to be. What retro stuff am I surrounded by? Well, um, if I need any reading material, I have 12 issues, issues two to 13 of Amiga Attic um, to entertain me. Um, I have some, uh, this is just one of many Amiga games, so Insanity Fight um that i purchased three years ago and i've only just been able to pick up and i've also purchased 27 would you believe spectrum games which are hard to get in australia so i've had them all shipped here um and some of those were donated very kindly some by pillock so i'll just grab one at random super hang on there we go from a box of many others he donated to me he also made me this cool little key ring out of a motorola cpu rather cool and also truzers very kindly donated um twin turbo v8 for the spectrum as well as many other card masters titles in a big box so really appreciate that um shadow the beast long box has been waiting for me here for a, quite a while so that's cool and george tui from tui's tech and gaming one of my favorite youtube channels um he has very very kindly donated to me the chaos engine for the amiga and also 
Turbo Challenge 2, Lotus Turbo Challenge 2, which as you know is one of my unicorns. So they don't work, um, that's why he's donated them, and um, there is some box restoration to be done, but not, not much, so I'll do some ironing, Neil. Um, but yeah, um, and some disc cleaning, and hopefully I can get those restored, which is great. And just finally, before I go, um, it's nice to pick up some things from my past that I never got rid of. So this is my um, original Intercity 125. It looks nice and neat and boxed. The box is munted, the track's not in there, but um, yeah, it's nice, box, three car set. Um, which is cool so sorry I couldn't be there have fun with this week's episode and I'll see you hopefully in the next one so you're not well Chris I'm sure you'll be back next week yeah get well soon Chris and uh, he is going to attempt he's, he's over for a few weeks so he's going to attempt to come over to the cave uh, next week so hopefully we will get him over here um, over in the cave, we've had uh, a busy old time. Uh, Mike Daly of Lemmings and Grand Theft Auto and DMA Design fame came to visit. He was the first ever guest speaker, live guest speaker that we've had in the cave in front of an audience. Uh, so we had a very special day at the cave and it went really well. I managed to get that down on camera and um, I've got that edited up and it will be out in the next couple of days after this show for anyone who wants to see Mike's talk and get a feel for a special guest day at the cave and we broke our cover on our most recent episode on rmc about the building of an arcade so i did an episode on a, an old prototype arcade machine called rescue and in that you meet the owner of the arcade alex who it just so happens has started a business down on the ground floor at the mill and is building an arcade and it's it's, it's going to be a very special arcade i'm not going to give away two details just too many details just yet we'll do a special episode on it but um, suffice to say, it's going to be special. Go and follow Alex's channel because a lot of stuff will be over there. Remember, it's him that's running it, not me. I've got plenty to do in the cave. But hopefully the two things will complement each other and you can come and see an awesome arcade and come up to the cave. And uh, the empire grows. The retro uh, destination that we're, we're trying to build here for everyone to come and visit. So that's what's been going on in the cave. It's been a busy old time. Uh, Dave, how have you been doing? Oh, I've been okay. A little bit of food poisoning, unfortunately, but uh, I've no, been... Not too many details on that, please. No. Um, <laughs> I have been struggling with USB problems on these computers, but that's all fixed now. And I started to play my first modern game in years. Um, it's a game probably most people will have heard of because it's been talked about so much. It's called Stray, in which you play a, a, a little um, cute cat that's been separated from the rest of its, its pack. A little feral cat, so it's um, um, it, it's never seen anything like it. It's really, really interesting, really innovative, and for all the bad things I say about modern gaming, um, this is this is the the, the antidote to it. So I'm I'm going to get right into that. I think I, I think it's a short game as well, which is nice. What does it bring us, Dave, above and beyond that classic game involving cats in Magenta Alley Cat? <laughs> well, it's, you're, you're not you're not trying to uh, you're, you're you're not it's not just a typical uh, game where you're just trying to fight things or shoot things and so on. It's it's something that I've not seen before. You you play a little cat. You've been separated from the pack. There's more to it as well. There's a good story going on there. It's like a good adventure game because there's there's lots more going on in the background. And I've seen people saying I'm not going to give you spoilers, but there's more coming later. And I don't want to talk about this, so I know that there's a, mm. a there's secrets there. And it's it's a it's set in um a sort of a cyberpunk. Uh, city 
see. So there's there's yeah, there's, there's lots going on. There's really interesting. Um, I like the look of it. Just just the mechanic of maneuvering the cat around and jumping up yeah. on things, and you know, it looks like a fun game to play. So is this a, a multi-platform release or is this a PS5 yeah. exclusive? Okay, multi-platform. No, no, it's it's on it's on PC, uh, PlayStation Four and PlayStation Five. Um, so you'll be able to play it one of those ways. It's not that. It's not particularly intensive on the for hardware wise in the PC either. Mm, Who'd have thought it? Modern gaming recommendations here on this weekend retro. <laughs> so that's stray. Go and check it out. And uh, I suggest we get on to our first story now, shall we? Our first story is a musical one, and we'll have to see how many or how few copyright strikes we might get by uh, sharing any music during this segment. Over to you, producer Duncan. Uh, he will do his best, I'm sure. And the story was submitted by Doctor Local. Uh, the story is titled "Retro Gaming with or Retro Games with Surprising Soundtracks." And the article opens with the following: it "says It's easy to see why video games are now generally regarded as works of art. The blending of many different mediums to create a unique interactive experience is truly astounding. And with the advancements in technology and media, people are now freely able to explore and appreciate them. One that's gained significantly more attention is music. Video game soundtracks have garnered more attention from both players and critics over the years, and it's now easier than ever to listen to your favorite game music's offerings." Um, because of this, there is now also a certain level of musical expectation in video games. Nowadays, it's no surprise that a video game showcases a grand, multifaceted soundtrack, often using a wide variety of instruments or even a full orchestra, and most players will assume as much. But back in the days of the PlayStation slash PlayStation 2, when certain mechanics and styles were still finding their feet, it was more common for players to judge a book by its cover. And if a game appeared subpar, uh, and poorly received by critics, then players would have no reason to delve any deeper. But as Roald Dahl once wrote, the greatest secrets can be found in the most unlikely places. So um, I'm quite pleased that we've got a musical story on here with the music maestro himself, John, joining us today. So uh, hopefully we'll have some, some good feedback for us. It's not really um, a story of great games with great soundtracks, as they explained. It's more great soundtracks hidden away in games that you probably wouldn't think twice about touching. Uh, the article is very console heavy, which I know will irk Dave somewhat. But let's have a look at some of the entries. It doesn't say out to be, and it doesn't say to see this is the whole picture and it's only consoles. It's talking this about PlayStation One and Two, which is fine. This is true. Dave's in a good mood today. <laughs> uh, first up is a game called Spider, the video game. Anyone heard of that one? No. No. Okay. Uh, it's on the PlayStation One. Um, I've definitely heard of the composer. So it's no real surprise to me that this one has good music. Uh, the music is by Barry Leitch, which um, many old school gamers will remember from soundtracks such as Lotus 2, Top Gear, TFX. He continued to make music well into the new generations. Um, so if Duncan will do the honors, let's have a listen now to music from Spider, the video game. And if that music doesn't appear, you'll know it's because we had a copyright strike and we've had to cut it out. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
So hopefully we got to hear that. Another example cited in the article is bat and ball game Breakout. Everyone's heard of Breakout. Well, there was a PlayStation update of the game. And it seems to have over two hours of audio on the OST, um, wow. at least on the YouTube link. I'm not quite sure how you fit two hours of audio on a CD. There must be, uh, I don't know, a mixture of CD audio and, you know, uh, some other audio. I don't know. But it's two hours on YouTube. Um, and there's some good music in that. I wouldn't expect such a simple game to inspire um, so much from the audio department. But hopefully we can have a listen now and it sounds a bit like this. Now, I won't spoil the whole article for those who want to explore it, so uh, we won't play any more from there, but do go and have a read. And instead, let's consider some of our own contributions to the list, perhaps. So um, we'll start with you, Dave. Keeping in mind, we're thinking about lesser known or lesser appreciated games with an interesting soundtrack. We don't have to limit ourselves, I think, to just CD music. What might you like to add to this list? So before before I do that, I want to pick up one line that I noticed in the article. And it, the article talks about PS1 and PS2 games, and it calls them retro. So that means the PS2 is retro. Angry comments below, please. Um, and I'm not going to get away with mentioning Ultima here, so I, I can't bring that one in. Um, but while we are talking about CD music, I'd also like to say that in some ways it was a bit of a step back because it kind of broke the link slightly with the game. Um, we often mention LucasArts here, and one of the greatest things they did was iMuse, which was interactive music that seamlessly blended into changes dependent on gameplay. Um, Monkey Island 2 was the first, and all the rest of the, the point-and-click did it. And Of course, you had TIE Fighter and Dark Forces. Uh, but when you moved to CD, you kind of lost that link because it was just kind of like background music tracks that were playing from it until, of course, it changed later on. Um, OMF 2097, which is one must fall as a 1v1 DOS fighting game. Um, not many people seem to have heard of, uh, over here. I think it's more popular in the, in the USA. Uh, over here, most people have heard of uh, Rise of the Robots, uh, famously thanks to your video. Um, <laughs> but uh, OMF is a fantastic game. It's my favourite fighting game, although it's not a genre that I like particularly much. And the music in it is absolutely great. It's really upbeat and it really makes you uh, raring to go and play the game. I've got fun memories of it, but does it still hold up today, in your opinion, Dave? Yes. Okay. Highlight John, it, are yeah. you familiar with One Must Fall? I am. This is uh, one of my, my co-host Aaron's favorite uh, fighting games. Uh, I've had a go with One Must Fall, and I think that you have to have a certain amount of nostalgia for it. I do not agree that it still holds up today because it's it's the, you, you're dealing with the, the same problem that you have on a lot of PC games, which is a limited amount of buttons. And, yeah. um, and it's just, it, am I going to play this over street fighter two? No. I mean, there's no, there, to me, there's no, there's nothing you can recommend it above maybe the aesthetic of the robots and things like that. There's nothing that you would recommend it above any sort of, you know, street fighter two esque fighting game. That's just my opinion. But at the time, 
at the you time, know, if you were a PC might gamer, not have been an yeah, it, yeah <laughs> if, if at the time you were a PC gamer and you didn't have access to any consoles where, you know, right off the bat, we got excellent ports of Street Fighter 2, then absolutely. I mean, yeah. you, you're, you're going to play this over body blows any day of the week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think this um, is this is prompting me to go back and try it because I've got very fond memories of One Must Fall. So uh, this week I'm going to go back and try it and we'll see how it holds up. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Dave. Crack on. No, th- th- there's more to it as well. I think I, I think I, I, there's more to MF because you've got you pick the the pilot and the robot you're in. You can do upgrades and so on. There's, there's it's a bit of bit of depth to it. Um, I like that Aaron likes it. He Aaron does know his fighting game. So if he likes it, then that's a, a real um, a real star. Um, the article talks about platform games being the big genre in the 90s and I think from a console perspective that, that's certainly true uh, but from a computer's perspective I think perhaps RTS was the, the genre that was most, most common uh, and they seem to find a recipe for making great atmospheric background music we know about Warcraft 2 and Command and & Conquer but there's loads of other um, RTS that had atmospheric music that kind of kept you kept you in it. Um, Age of Mythology, I really enjoyed that way. Um, they they had different they had Norse and uh, Egyptian and I think it was Greek. I think yeah, Greek and the music was themed to that, but it, it was really good. Uh, Dungeon Keeper one and two, they had a, they had good music that way as well. Um, yeah. Neil, and who can forget the classic jazz tunes of Transport Tycoon? I'd like to. I don't like them. <laughs> I don't like see. Um, don't. Oh, I think that's no, a great combo. I think that's oh. the perfect music for that game. And SimCity 2000 as well. They, you know, great tunes to go with that gameplay. I, I wish I liked them, but I, I don't. I, people, people seem to. Have, I watch videos on the, on the games. I love the games. Maybe people have nostalgia for the music, and I, I hated it. <laughs> um, but the one I'm going to pick is Lost Eden, which is a sort of adventure game. It's quite weird. Sort of an adventure game from the same studio as Dune, so it's a, it's a French game, and the same composer as Dune, which is Stefan Peake. Uh, it's great. Uh, I mentioned before the music in Dune is amazing, but it's um, Dune is not lesser appreciated. It's a very famous game. Uh, Lost Eden, though, is a bit of a... Uh, it's not quite as famous as Dune, and it has dinosaurs. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's your, that's your favourite, Dave. That's the <laughs> selling point. It has dinosaurs. Is it a good game? Is it a bad game with good music? <sighs> It's an interesting game. Um, it's got great music. I can't call it a great game, um, but it, it, it at least wasn't a, a generic, boring game, if that makes sense. You try something interesting. John, do you have any you'd like to you talk about? Well, you know, being a console gamer, uh, first and foremost, most of the games that uh, I think have great music, everybody knows about. You know, you look at any of the uh, Square... Uh, role-playing games on the Super Nintendo. And I mean, it's just, it's world-class music that that holds up in a symphonic way. In fact, there's a touring ensemble, the Video Games Live Orchestra, that tours the United States pretty much constantly and plays these themes. You know, probably my favorite soundtrack of all time is uh, is Chrono Trigger, uh, the uh, Super Nintendo role-playing game. But these days, uh, Earthbound, uh, you know, maybe Earthbound not so popular in the UK and in Europe because it never got a release there, but it was a, uh, a Super Nintendo role-playing game. It was set in a totally different setting. It was set in modern day. Uh, you played as just a normal kid. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, really neat things that that game did that sort of never happened again. Um, but the, the music for that is very unique. And one of the things that's so interesting to me, and one of the reasons why I think 
um, you know, console games sort of won out over computer games in the 16-bit era is because you were able to fit so much more music onto a cartridge because of the way that you could expand cartridges out that you couldn't without the aid of massive amounts of floppy disks. I mean, if you look at the soundtrack of a game like The Secret of Mana uh, for the Super Nintendo, there's easily two hours of music on that. On that, I mean, there are, there's, there's 40 different tracks. Um, and, you know, we play so many games on Amigos where there's a title track that plays. Uh, and then once you start the game, it's, just, it's dead silence. Um, on the Amiga side, though, I think my, my pick for a somewhat lesser known game with a great soundtrack is Fury of the Furries. Um, oh, yes. Great. Choice. That game yeah. is uh, is very unique and very fun. Um, and uh, the, the soundtrack is right up my alley. It's sort of this jazzy, loungy kind of laid back tune. And um, I, I just really adore the soundtrack. It's a perfect complement to the to the game. Yeah. And the team that made that are straight out of the demo scene. So it's got that sharpness and that, oh, it's just so well made on every level. But the music yeah. in particular is great. Yeah. Um, and I think when you switch over to the CD32, you know, they haven't turned it into a CD soundtrack or anything because the music's great. You know, it's it's good enough just on your mm -hmm. regular Amiga. Mm -hmm. Um for my choices, I mean, it's not really a lesser-known game, and it's not a particularly get bad game, but what popped into my head when I was thinking about this was uh, a LucasArts game that gets far fewer mentions than all the others, and that's The Dig, which has this kind of fantastic ethereal orchestral soundtrack throughout, gives a real sense of wonder and just the vastness of space and this weird alien space that you're um, exploring. It's a really wonderful soundtrack and well worth checking out on um, YouTube. Even at, you know, you go on YouTube sometimes and you look for like concentration music or coding, there's coding music compilations and things like that that you just have on in the background. It's one of those that's perfect for that. Just have it mm. on while you work away. Um, and as an aside, it got me thinking as well about, we were talking about Barry Leitch earlier. There's Rob Hubbard, of course, is a very well-known and celebrated musician from the 8-bit video game era, especially on the C64. But if you wanted to hear a bit more Rob Hubbard, um, I'm not saying this is good music, and it's certainly not a good game, but if you fire up Sam Fox Strip Poker on the C64, the music's composed by a, a man by the name of John York, which is actually Rob Hubbard under a fake name because he didn't want to put his reputation on the line on Sam Fox Strip Poker. So um, <laughs> give it a listen. I'm ignoring those hand gestures that you're doing there, Dave. <laughs> um, give it a listen. Um, there's a few tracks there of, of perhaps Rob Hubbard music that you haven't heard before. Is that so, the excuse that you tell Lily? What's that? I was just listening to the music. I was just listening. Yeah, I was just firing up strip poker. <laughs> I to just bought to it the for the music. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is, of course, a much wider to de debate to be had, as uh, Dave rightly touched on earlier, about the introduction of CD music, um, the recordings of real instruments uh, moving away from the limitations of the various sound chips of the earlier generations, but also, you know, without excluding those earlier sound chips and those tunes, um, because they all had their own charm and, and people worked within those limitations and created some fantastic music. And there was that weird crossover period where it just sounded like music playing from a CD uh, that sometimes had no attachment to what you were doing on the screen, but they got there in the end with uh, multi-track yeah. music that could and, adapt. And to be fair, there are plenty of non-CD games where there's just a song playing in the background that has no connection yeah. to the game. Well, this is true. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Um, 
So, um, yeah, plenty to talk about. Do a Google and check out the article to read up and um, hear some more. Um, I do like the idea of popping in an awful old PlayStation game into a CD player and not even seeing the game load, just hearing the music tracks play, hearing the score. So if you've got any suggestions for us to listen to something like that, we're going to make this our community question of the week at the end of the show. So listen out for that and get thinking. Uh, submitted by Trevor Keverson, um, Doomception. So... Running Doom on things that shouldn't run Doom is a bit of a trope now. Um, it's a bit of a cliche, but we all seem to get some joy from it. So you've seen Doom on a, a Samsung fridge, Doom on a pregnancy test, Doom on a 1998 digital camera, Doom on a printer, and we could go on. And as we know, there's always a rush to get Doom to run on everything new. We've talked about it on This Week in Retro before, but this time, thanks to the submission from Trevor uh, to the subreddit, we've got something that's a little bit different. Um, now, before I go on to explain what it is, Neil, have you actually ever had more than a moment's fun running Doom on anything that shouldn't, or is it just the cool <laughs> factor of hacking something up to do what it shouldn't? There is a big element of that. I think the last time I was excited by doom or a version of doom was probably when that rtx version of doom came out um just because it was cool tech but that's not really doom running on anything other than a pc so that doesn't really count um if i really had to think about it it was probably doom running on a nokia 9210 because i used to have one of those that was like the flip up communicator style phone um little palm top device i had one of those around 2002 2003 and i remember getting doom to run on that and thought wow doom runs on it <laughs> and then i closed it so i can't say i actually played doom and i think that's what most of us do you fire it up and you go yep there's doom <laughs> and that's it um but uh, that's not to say i don't appreciate all the efforts to hack this into various devices because it is a fun point of focus to work around and if it wasn't doom then it would be something else that that would be the poster child for hacking any new device uh, the point being you get a common result it's all it's like benchmarking isn't it you can see this common thing run on all the devices and you go yeah that runs a bit better on that fridge than it does on that um kettle over there um and doom seems as, as good as anything else for doing that with and i think they're still trying to get doom to run on an amiga um now what's happened now is that someone has managed to get doom to run on a new device and what is that device it's doom yes they've got doom running inside doom and for once i think it can be said that it's not being run on something that shouldn't run doom although it's Doom twice at the same time, so it's Doomception. Um, and it worked. I, I think you could get it to run inside itself. I think you could go on iterations infinitely. Um, it works by using a scripting language. There's a function that can be called called um, spawn map thing. And by going negative, and it gets complicated, but it turns into a code exploit. And the end result is a second instance of Doom being called and showing up inside Doom. Hmm. Or he goes on to show Heretic running inside Doom. Um, you can run up to the wall showing Doom in Doom and it'll mimic your movements. I haven't seen this running yet, uh, Dave. So when you say it's sort of a code exploit, does that mean the first instance of Doom freezes up while you play the second? Or is no. 
no so the imps no. and things could still be walking around you yes. while you're playing doom within doom okay. yeah the example shown is it's kind of like a a, 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 a movie theater created inside doom with this 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 window that you can see the second version of doom running in um so you you run up to the wall showing doom and it mimics your movements it's of course maybe not the best way to play doom uh, <laughs> but maybe is it the last can you run doom it can you think of anything else that is still to do neil well, um, I can. I, there's going to be plenty more things. This is certainly not going to be the last thing, you know. With the, the Internet of Things, it's going to give us plenty more chances to run Doom for many years to come. So don't you worry, Dave. Uh, I recently saw on social media an overpriced toaster. Um, I had Linux built into it in a touch screen. Did you guys see this? You could select how brown you want your toast on the touch screen. And can you imagine smearing butter and honey all over that touch screen while you? Well, you make your toast instead of just yanking a handle down. Um, well, surely Doom is the only good reason to own that toaster. You could run Doom on the toaster. Uh, you could have it so that when you run out of ammo, the toast pops and you've got to slam some more bread in to reload or something like that. You know, that's, that's an immersive experience. That's what <laughs> yeah, <is. laughs> and, and maybe it starts smoking at some point, you know, in line with what's going on in the game. I don't know. Um, just as an aside, I should mention, um, Dave, there's another story in the subreddit this week which announces John Romero is working on a new FPS with a major developer. There's, there's no more detail really than that at this stage, but there will be more FPS, Romero FPS action soon. Where's Chris when you need him? Um, but yeah. Um, uh, John, can you think of anything you'd like to run Doom on? You know, I want to I want to flip this whole thing on its head. I want to take just the first two letters of Doom, and I want to see Mister Do running on stuff. <laughs> That's much more exciting <laughs> to me. Give me the refrigerator running Mister Do any day. I'm sick yeah. of this Doom stuff. Mister Do, I idea. mean, if you can if you can run Doom in Doom, surely they can hack it. Well, you said they've run her Heretic, but surely any executable they can get running. So let's have Mister Do in Doom. Yeah, yeah. Or what was the what was the main competition to Doom back in the day? Something like Descent or uh, um, eventually maybe, it was Duke Nukem. Duke, 3D. Duke Nukem, yeah. yeah. Maybe have Duke Nukem running inside of Doom. That would be kind of that would be kind of cool. Wasn't there an arcade machine in Duke Nukem, like Super Turkey Puncher? I think it was called. Mm. I, I um, dimly recall that. Yeah, but I don't think a game ran on it. So there, maybe you could get Doom. That's the next step. Get Doom to run in Duke Nukem on the Super Turkey That's Puncher it. arcade. You, cabinet. you nailed it. That's Neil. what I want to see. That's the next <laughs> phase. <laughs> Someone will do that. No, someone will spend hours and hours doing it. Um, well, you know, you know, somebody has actually made a physical Super Turkey Puncher arcade cabinet. That's out yeah. there in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought to myself about other games that play inside games, and the first one I remembered was the original Maniac Mansion, which played inside the sequel to it, Day of the Tentacle. Mm -hmm. And I know that you can play Zork on a virtual keyboard inside Call of Duty Black Ops, uh, which in my opinion makes it the best game in that whole franchise, until they topped it in Black Ops 2 by putting Atari arcade classics in. Um, Wolfenstein Fallen Order did the same as Day of the Tentacle they put Wolfenstein 3D inside it Fallout 4 had Missile Command, Donkey Kong and Space Invaders which can be played on your Pip-Boy which is a uh, for anyone who hasn't played Fallout it's a, it's a green screen smartwatch in game and to give themselves some real 8-bit credentials they've used the same kind of British knockoff names that we were used to so they've called them Atomic Command Red Menace and Zeta Invaders <laughs> nice, nice. Um, th this might be the quickest correction in this week in retro history, so we'd have to wait for next week's show and comments. Super Turkey Puncher appeared in Doom, not in Duke Nukem. I've just double-checked. 
So uh, there we, we, we've probably had some comments written already. So, you know, I, I do apologize if you could go back, just remove those comments. We'll all pretend that never happened. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> and to bring us right back to Doom, inside Doom, it's not the first time it's happened. For Doom, you needed to, um, to collect 14 items before you could use it. And then... Um, this is in the, the, the 2016, was it 2016 kind of re, reboot of Doom? Um, so if you collected 14 items, you could use a PC inside Doom to do it. And Doom 2 is password protected. The password is, spoilers, Flynn Tiger. And I had to look up who that was. He is the protagonist in the Doom novels. And if Chris was here, I'm sure he would have known that. Without a doubt. I didn't realize Doom had exploded onto the literary scene. I don't know if explode is the right word for them. I bet it <laughs> limply fell onto shelves. Our next story this week is shared by our good friend Pajaco6502, and it comes from the NintendoLife.com website. And it's sort of a mashup of two stories that seem to have fallen in line this week. So um, I'll, I'll read the first story, and, and then Dave, you can you can tell us about the second story that that aligns with this. Uh, the, the first story, it comes from a very interesting source. It comes from a newly elected official to Japan's House of Councillors by the name of Ken Akamatsu. The House of Councillors, in my limited understanding, is the upper house in the Japanese system of government. Um, to the UK, that would be the House of Lords. But Japan abolished the peer system, so instead it's more of a US sort of Senate-style system. And that's where Mr. Akamatsu sits. And he put out a tweet this week, which reads, From 20 hundred hours yesterday, the Digital Copyright PT of the Legal System Subcommittee of the Digital Archive Society regarding legal preservation of past games in a playable state. It was decided to form a selection team with experts and embark on it. Archiving and utilizing old content that is being lost is an area where I have strong enthusiasm and I want this to succeed. So what we have here is a man in a position of power in the government, making moves to archive and preserve content, including video games, which he says he has a strong enthusiasm for. And the man does have previous too. In 2010, he set up a website, which is now called Manga Library Z or Z, which preserves out of print novels, manga, and tactical role playing game rule books. And this is all done with the consent of the original authors. So, on the surface, it seems like he might well be the right man for the job. And Japan has played such a key part in the history of video games, I would hope that the general population recognizes the importance of it in its popular culture and its need to preserve history, and hopefully that can move forward for them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, interestingly, this isn't the only story of its kind this week, so let's jump from Japan to Sweden, where Dave can pick up this story. And you'll notice I'm wearing my software preservation t-shirt today. <laughs> A few weeks ago, we talked about the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. That's the RCM, not RMC. And we brushed on hoarding and what is hoarding, etc. Another story been submitted to the subreddit by 42nobody42. Uh, it's quite linked to it. Unlike the RCM, they've got, they've got one clear goal in mind, but seemingly no other goals they're willing to make public. And the goal is to have a copy of each physical game ever made. And at least according to Vice, which is the article submitted, although the article points to the project's website, which does now appear to doesn't appear to have that quote on it. Um, imagine a place where all physical games, consoles, and accessories are gathered at the same place. So I think the website has been updated 
after the article was written. The website's got more clear, more, more clear goals on it, and here they are. So currently they have 50,000 games, consoles, and accessories in a place in Carlsbad in Sweden. A team has been recruited with a CEO, archivist, archive assistant, technical engineer, and supply manager. And the next phase is building a database and starting cataloging in 2022. And in the future, network and collaborate with initiatives, museums, and institutions to provide help to researchers and journalists with inquiries. And the long-term ambition is to exhibit parts of the archive locally and through satellite exhibitions at other locations. Now, they don't mention micros. Um, and everybody knows I, I like micros. And if they only have consoles and think that's everything, then I'm writing them off. Um, <laughs> it's being done by the Embracer Group. And that, that's a huge corporation which have been on a spending spree. They now have 10 subdivisions, and some of the names you might recognize, Amplifier Game Invest, Asmodee, Coffee Stain Holding, Dark Horse Media, Deca Games, Easy Brain, Gearbox Entertainment, Cock Media, Sabre Interactive, and THQ Nordic, Square Enix, and Eidos Montreal. So the big company, huge amount of turnover. I had a look at the annual report, 6,500 employees, and a turnover of 1.6 billion euro, and record losses last year of 408 million euros. Um, so they have the cash to fund this, uh, and they're seemingly quite happy to, to splash it around. And I don't know much about the company, but I'm a bit put off by them only talking about consoles. However, on the press releases, I did see them buying people's collections, and that did include micros. So maybe it's just that overseas people tend to call consoles everything. Uh, rather than use the word micros, and maybe they include micros in the consoles. I know that micros were more of a, a British thing than they were elsewhere. Um, now, modern gaming isn't too much of an ethical thing, and I'm getting Bond supervillain vibes with this. To me, this looks a little bit like someone's private collection. Someone's got a lot of money and they said, right, I want I want to employ a small team of people to, to gather all this stuff from my private collection. Um, I'm not sure, just vibes I'm getting from it. Um, maybe I'm in a little little cynical there, but I would rather it was a not-for-profit organisation, perhaps funded, get, getting funding from the, the, the gaming industry in general, but a not-for-profit organisation rather than a pet project by uh, a company doing this, because at any point they could just close the doors and say, no, I don't want anything to do with other people are visiting. Um, Neil? And that collector's name? John Shuler, throwing, <laughs> throwing his billions of dollars around. <laughs> yeah, in his lair. Um, yeah, they're two very different sounding video game archiving uh, initiatives, aren't they? One at the government level, the other as a private collection. Embracer said they've amassed 50,000 games, which on the scale of games, you know, that's that's not even the C64 and the ZX Spectrum library dead together is it um so they've got a long way to go uh, but also just saying that it gives a reason why they might stick to consoles because the micro market you know tens and tens of thousands to complete a collection yeah. the barrier um, to entry was much lower whereas you know what, what's your typical console you know you well, like the, the nes for example had something like 750 um release cartridges so, yeah yeah 
Yeah, so uh, a little bit more achievable, but of course it's still going to be difficult because I imagine with that amount of money and that um, initiative, they're going to want the boxed editions, they're going to want the instructions, they're going to want the best examples of everything right. that they can get. And their hands you could on. probably you could probably amass the entire known ZX Spectrum library uh, from a financial perspective three times before you could afford the entire NES library because the prices of the games, prices of console games on the secondary yeah. market are so much higher. You can have one water graded Mario 64, or you can have the entire microcomputer library from all time. Yeah. Um, and, and also um, in the article, um, it goes on to mention how Sony have set up a dedicated PlayStation preservation team to try and preserve their own history. So it's almost as though that thing that we as collectors have known for a long time now is dawning on other people in power and in corporations that the age of the physical game media is in its final death throes. And if you want in any way to celebrate your heritage as a company, as a country, or just you know, as an enthusiast, the time to take action is now. It really is. And personally, I think I'm more excited for preservation taking place at a government level and hopefully in a way that will create a, a national archive that was created by the people and for the people, as they say, in John's land and therefore is fully accessible by them and not hidden away in an underground vault. Um, what, what do you guys think? Do you, do you like the sound of these or can you imagine anyone in your own government making such a proposal, John? Well, in the United States, the Library of Congress, its remit is to have at least one copy of every book published in the United States. And they actually have their own cataloging system, the Library of Congress cataloging system, uh, which is uh, actually standardized with academic libraries all around the United States because it is the most exhaustive. And so there is, can you tell that I have a master's degree in library management? Um, so the... Um, there's precedence for this in the United States um, where, you know, they, the, the government will say, OK, you know, we want to have one of everything. Let's do it. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that video games uh, in the eyes of many have the same historical significance as, as printed literature does, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, so I think it is going to fall on. I don't think the, the burden falls entirely on private companies like the, the second story, but I think that the burden falls more to nonprofit groups. Um, for example, I just uh, started uh, after the success of BoatFest, uh, I thought a lot about what I can do to help uh, preserve vintage computers here locally in, in West Virginia, uh, where I live. And I actually created a, a nonprofit called the West Virginia Vintage Computer Society. Um, and so doing everything through a nonprofit, um, you know, it allows people to one, you know, write things off when they donate it and two, feel a little bit better that the machine that they're donating to the, the society is going to be well cared for and taken a look at it. And it's not just going to die with whoever's collection it is that, that, that when it gets sold off or whatever. So, and I think that you see this around the country and around the world, you have the various computer museums in the UK at Cambridge and Leicester, you have the, the museums on the West coast of the United States, and also just sort of like pop-up museums, like the vintage computer federation. So you're seeing all of these little, um, these little collections and things spring up, but you don't really see it as much on the software side as the hardware side. And, and I, I, I think for a lot of people, uh, the, the, especially in the micro world, the task of collecting every single release 
is almost insurmountable when you look at you know variations games that were, were had very limited releases um and um it just seems like something that's impossible to do so maybe collecting the 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 digital versions which anybody can do if you just go on the internet archive or whatever is is more of a task that is is worth saving than actually having all of the cassette inlays and everything like that though i'm a sucker for physical media and i'd love to have everything in its physical form yeah the, yeah, the the problem with some micro games is that the game starts before you load it up. The mm -hmm. game starts when you open up the cassette or the box and you read the, the back. It, it sets the story so that you can use your imagination to enhance what you see on the actual screen. So um, we, we sometimes talk about that's what you lose with emulation when you've got a big list of games and a flash drive. You load up the game and bang, you're straight in it and you don't feel as much for it. So right. Yeah, that, that's why I, I think it's important to, 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 to try and collect the software um, mm. uh, rather than just have the, the, the box and so on, rather than just have the software itself. As an aside, regardless of what you think about their, their motives or their approach, um, that company that stated they've got a dedicated archivist and an assistant and all of that, can you imagine being the archivist in that place? That is, that's like a dream job, you know. If that yeah. if that position hasn't been filled yet, please drop me an email. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they are buying collections as well, so they're they're looking out to buy complete collections from people. So maybe Neil, maybe uh, you'll uh, just give it up and just sell everything to there, and the one day the game won't be there. <laughs> not, um, not until I've similar... completed my Amstrad GX four thousand collection. <laughs> um, on a similar thing, another story submitted to the subreddit, and again by Pajaco. It's about Ubisoft, and it's about modern games, or modern-ish games, um, by our terms, modern games, 10 years old, whatever. Uh, what Ubisoft has done is announced that they're going to turn off their servers in September this year, which means that some content, etc., online stuff will go. And that's not a new thing. Uh, that's been happening, and sometimes the community steps in to fill the gap. So, but quite often in the past, um, online games, the games that you played multiplayer, the multiplayer part would just disappear, or um, massively uh, multiplayer online role-playing games, they shut down at some point, and that's them over. Um, but this time, there was a little bit of a different thing going on. This time, um, single player games or games that are mostly single player were believed to be disappearing uh just disappearing because ubisoft had presumably got rid of the, the authentication servers now it turns out to either be um there was a, of course an uproar uh and it turns out to either have been a u-turn or a clarification um i don't think ubisoft are claiming it's a u-turn they're saying that oh no there was never a plan to do that but the single player games will still be available um Although there's some aspects I think will disappear. I know Anno 2070 has a sort of an online vault thing where across many games you'll unlock and store things and they'll help you in when you start a new game. And that is an online thing, so that has to go. Although the developers of the actual game itself have said they'll try and try and do something about that. Um, but I thought I'd bring it up here because content is disappearing. Um, I know we're talking about physical media, but even digital media, the content is disappearing at more easily disappearing because you need to use their servers to do it. Uh, so the moment that rights holders have to pay money to keep servers running and they're not getting an income from it, they just drop it and abandon it. And the law is not on the side of preservation. Take it back to the start, what you said about uh, the Japanese government. The law is not on the side of preservation at the moment. We know that the word 
abandoned where is it is a misnomer. It's not it's not abandoned where it's not legal to just say it's been abandoned, so it's okay for me to do that. The law doesn't help you there. I understand both sides of the issue. And uh, you know, games exist to make money for their developers and the publishers. That's the the purpose of the the medium is I mean, these are all publicly traded companies uh that are that are producing these these big MMO games. Uh, because you've got to have big bucks to to support servers and things like that. And even if there was a uh, a way to keep the servers running, like say for example, uh, they they auctioned off the servers, and there was some sort of community effort to kind of move the servers to a privately owned um, place where people continue to play. Uh, the developers don't want that. They want you playing their new game. You know, so I don't see a way out for this. Yeah, I uh, I think copyright law is is out of date. It's wrong. Uh, it's abused as well. I think copyright law exists to allow artists to create and enjoy an income from what they create, um, but it ends up being something that's used to um, by big corporations, and it, it and it just it, it stops the it stops the enjoyment of a product. Um, and it just dies and it's and disappears. But certainly an area to watch. Uh, I agree. I think the legal side is certainly more interesting at the moment than somebody just throwing money at building an archive. If we can see any other governments following the footsteps of the direction Japan look like, again, it's just one guy in the government in Japan, so it's not definitely going to happen, but a direction that he wants to take. If other governments can take note, fingers crossed, that would be great. Uh, do let us know on our subreddit if you're aware of any similar projects taking place in your own countries. We'd love to hear about them. The address, of course, is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Time now for our community question of the week. And this week we talked about Final Fantasy books. Uh, Chris mentioned the Lone Wolf books. And we wondered if you had any other gaming book recollections. Did the books we mentioned appear in your country? Or did you have a series of books that we didn't mention? Please let us know. So, um, Dave, do you want to read the first answer on the uh, question of yeah. the week? So the first one is from Ben Wawa, who I presume is the inventor of a guitar pedal. Um, <laughs> I have always been a big fan of the fighting fantasy books and any other adventure game books there are. I have many great memories of these books, many of which mirror both Dave and Neil's, such as going to the library to borrow the books and save scumming as well. Fingers and books. Um, but my fondest memory was going into town with my dad and buying Stealer of Souls. We then walked up the hill to my grandparents' house and when we go there, nobody was there. I think when we got there, nobody was there. My dad told me to get the book out and we proceeded to play the book together. I did all the reading and when a decision was made, we would discuss it with each other. This is probably one of my fondest memories with my dad when I come to think about it. I think that the choose your own adventure books were more popular in America. Is that true, Boat? Did you did you see them? Absolutely. That was that was the only thing that I ever saw. Yeah, okay, they so were. So are you now aware of fighting fantasy? Never. I don't think that they made an appearance on our shores. Oh, it's a shame. They were great. Um, sorry, 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 Ben. Um, I think that the choose your own adventure books were more popular in America, but those were simpler where you would only make choices and there's no fighting and dice rolling. Mm -hmm. 
In fact, as an English literature university student, I teamed up with my friend and we self-published our own game book. It is called You Are the President. In the book, you take the role of the president of the USA and you have to contend with lots of different conspiracy theories. It's still available on Amazon, so grab your copy Grab yourself a copy of it. It sounds fun. That's the first <laughs> advert we've had in these, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, now, in the, I wonder if any of the outcomes of this book are actually worse than what's happening these yeah, days. Yeah, this is fictional. Uh, this is not a, not a guidebook for future presidents. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the present day, I'm an English teacher in Thailand, and I teach reading and writing. I have my students get into groups and make their own twenty to thirty, 20 to 30 section game books. It's a great way to get them using English and they seem to like it as well. So he's actually been, he's right into these all the way through, not just like I did in 1985, just drop them and forget about them. He's, he's, mm. he's kept going with these the whole time. Good. Answer. That's a fantastic nice. idea. As a former English teacher in Thailand, I wish I would have thought of that. Of course, <laughs> you, you lived out there as well, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Uh, John, do you want to read out the second answer from Guybrush Loves Tesla? For me, it was the way of the Tiger books. I was hugely into ninjas a lot, as a lot of kids were in the 80s. I still ended up with quite a few fighting fantasy books and, and was always pulled in by the amazing cover art. What these books did was to pull me away from my specky and give me a much needed break. Wasn't there a Spectrum game called Way of the Tiger? Yes. There was. Was that in any way related to the book? Oh, I don't know. No. I, know I, it was, remember, I didn't enjoy the game too much, but... It had fantastic artwork. That's why I remember yeah. it. It had this yeah. ninja coming out like a tiger's mouth. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I don't know that there's any connection. I imagine if there was going to be a connection, it would be an interactive fiction style, you know, text adventure rather than um, an arcade game. But who knows? Who knows? Someone will tell us if there's a link. Um, the, the third answer, um, third most popular answer comes from Generation Pixel. And they say, 1985, second year at Kilmarnock Academy, I managed to get out of PE because I decided I was too asthmatic to do all of that outdoor running about. My punishment, in, in um, speech marks, for having the audacity to decline PE was to be sent to the library for two hours a week. And that's where I discovered fighting fantasy books. I'd had a specky since Christmas 82, and discover what were basically computer games in book form was a revelation. Some of my fondest memories of secondary school were those visits to the library. And now I've been reminded you're making me head to eBay next. <laughs> and I think that's the, he's mentioned something I, I tried to say last week and I, last episode. I don't really think I got my finger on it. They were computer games. They were computer games in a book form. That's, that's the, they were between role playing games and computer games. But because you could do it yourself and the book was doing the part of the computer, you, you could do a role playing game without other people being there. It's yeah, fantastic, I mean, uh, fantastic concept. I wish that we had those. I could go for one of those right now. I don't, there's, a, well, there's a new one coming out, so maybe uh, get on Amazon and buy it, and then when yeah. it comes out, you can sit down and play it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would take you out of the book, but they could even these days, they could incorporate like QR codes and things like that for a little bit of extra. Oh, Dave's oh, wincing. No, no, no you've got no, to keep it all within it. the book, have you? Yeah, <laughs> unless you had a, unless you, I'm thinking an app on your phone, you can scan it and it would give you a, a, a nice full color image or something. But then you've got oh. your phone in your hand and yeah. you see what the about, message. What about just, you. just there are board games that do this. What about just background music? Nice music yeah. while you read the book to set yeah. the, the tone. Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. On vinyl. Um, yeah. 
So um, thank you to everyone who submitted their uh, answers. Um, our next community question of the week, which you can take part in, is what video game music do you think is excellent but attached to a subpar game? Where can we find unexpectedly good music? And if you can include a link, if possible, to that music, uh, perhaps on YouTube or anywhere else so that we can have a listen, that would be great. The question will be up at our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. It'll be one of the pinned posts at the top of the um, subreddit there. So give it a click and let us know your answers and we'll look forward to having a listen, maybe even play some of the more popular ones next week. Copyright permissions and all of that um, permitting. Now, before we go, first of all, John, it's been wonderful to have you back on the show. Yeah. Oh, and secondly, what's coming up? Where, where can we look out for you? What do we need to know all about you? So Saturday, July 30th, Starting at 2 p.m. England time, 9 a.m. my time, our annual Amigathon charity fundraiser uh, benefiting Children's Miracle Re uh, Network Hospitals is going down right here on in, in, in Hurricane West Virginia on twitch.tv slash Amigos Retro Gaming. And that uh, which number is this? How many Emmy have you done, though? We, this is um, Amigathon 6, I believe. Um, we have been doing this, uh, we've been doing uh, Amiga-based charity fundraising since 2017. We've been involved with Extra Life and the Children's Miracle Network since 2018. Um, this is a 12-hour Amiga gaming marathon featuring me, my co-host Aaron, and his brother Brent. Uh, we will be doing 12 hours of non-stop Amiga gaming madness. Um, it's always a lot of fun. And we're benefiting a great cause. As you know, we don't have the benefit of the NHS here in the United States. And there are a lot of families that simply cannot afford quality health care. And, uh, and it's especially tragic when there are children involved. So this, uh, this uh, fundraiser benefits the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals, which helps treat children uh, and uh, in some cases helps them go without paying a cent uh, when they are in need. So it's a very worthy cause. Um, if you are interested in watching, like I said, you can check us out at twitch.tv slash Amigos Retro Gaming. If you would like to donate, uh, please visit, uh, you can go to bit.ly bit slash Amigathon 2022, and uh, that will take you to our Extra Life page. Uh, we have a goal set up of $3,000. Uh, we have surpassed the $2,000 mark already. Thanks wow. to people just kind of getting hyped up, uh, mm. but uh, you can help us out and uh, help out the the uh, help heal some sick kids. So uh, we'd appreciate it if you would uh, check us out on Saturday, and uh, if you can throw some money their way, every cent goes to Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. That's fantastic! Well that, done, John. Well done. The way um, that this works is, for us. This is on uh, Saturday, the thirtieth of July. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And, and what time was that's it today? And that's going to start at uh, 9 a.m. my time, 2 p.m. your time. 2 p.m. British summer time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so not long after this show is released, because this goes out yeah. on a Saturday, um, Duncan will make sure the links to everything you've mentioned there are included in the show notes. And I'll, I'll jump in. Hopefully we'll see you all there on the live stream on Twitch. And um, I, I've no doubt you'll get to that $3,000 goal and beyond, but uh, let's help make that happen, everyone. Yeah. John, thank you again for joining us. We hope to have you again in the future. And uh, take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. 
It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. Podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.